0: To the Extent That is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection.
1: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the first episode of this podcast series on Unusual Litigations. I'm Stuart Rebeck, and I'm the chair of the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee. In this series of podcasts, we'll be looking at different kinds of disputes that don't necessarily follow the normal and expected patterns litigators are familiar with, going to a regular state or federal court, filing a complaint, asking for damages or an injunction, or something that looks a lot like that. For our first episode, we'll be looking at receiverships. These proceedings almost always are under the supervision of a court, And they produce some unique issues that don't appear in regular litigation and we have two people here who know plenty about receiverships first judge lewis bledsoe judge bledsoe is chief judge of the north carolina business court in charlotte before becoming a judge judge bledsoe clerked on the fourth circuit and did commercial litigation in charlotte for almost 30 years melissa visconti is at the miami law firm damien and Valori. She clerked in the Southern District of Florida after law school and spent 11 years as a prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida U.S. Attorney's Office. She now does business litigation with a steady diet of federal equity receiverships and other kinds of complex disputes. So now that we have our our interlocutors uh, introduced, let's start off the discussion with a basic question. What is a receivership? And how does one get created? And are there different kinds? Uh, well, Stuart, I can uh,
0: I can start uh, and and say that um, uh, a receivership proceeding is a proceeding uh, that um, is available uh, in a variety of circumstances. Uh, in my experience. Uh, Most often I am asked to appoint receivers uh, where there's credible evidence that a uh, majority owner of an LLC or majority shareholder in a corporation has been squandering corporate assets or mismanaging the business to the detriment of the corporation. Um, uh, There's uh, malfeasance uh, that is uh, suspected with supporting evidence. Uh, in that kind of scenario, uh, I may well, uh, again, upon a credible showing, um, uh, appoint a receiver to investigate that, uh, uh, mismanagement to take charge of the assets of the entity, uh, to, uh, recover, uh, claims that the entity has to, um, uh, Prosecute uh, actions uh, and ultimately to, uh, well, and to liquidate assets and to ultimately um, distribute assets to creditors. Um, another type of scenario where I uh, often am asked to appoint a receiver is in a situation where you've got corporate deadlock, whether that's a 50 50 LLC situation or a corporation that uh, has an even number of board members, and they're uh, uh, they're entrenched in their three-three or four-four positions, and the company cannot manage itself consistent with its bylaws or operating agreement. Uh, and there, um, I might appoint a receiver. Uh, to actually run the business uh, while the disputed ownership uh, issues, if are, uh, while those are adjudicated uh, or while claims between the parties are litigated or uh, in the event uh, that the only solution is to dissolve the entity uh, to have that receiver uh, go through the liquidating and winding up process uh, for the entity. Uh, another scenario would be in um, uh, where, where a business is insolvent uh, and either directors or minority already interest or creditors uh, seek f- an order of, uh, of liquidation and dissolution and lining up and uh, uh, I might consider doing it in that situation and then obviously if there's just a straight dissolution action which I guess is is really covered in the last point uh, um, then I would I would consider doing it uh, there. Um, so those are those are the sorts of situations that I would consider uh, uh, appointing a receiver, um, and the the type of powers I might give a receiver would be very fact dependent. Sometimes they would be broad, as I mentioned in the initial example, uh, where the uh, receiver would take possession and control of all or substantially all of the assets. Um, there could also be situations where the receiver's duties are more nearly uh, prescribed. Uh, perhaps it might be to sell specific real estate. Uh, perhaps it might be to um, conduct an investigation uh, or do an accounting. Um, it really would be, um, uh, it would really be Dependent upon the facts and circumstances of the case, what the parties are seeking, um, and what just you know makes sense in the circumstances, uh, I'll let I'll, I'll turn to Melissa now, where you can get a um, uh, an, an accurate answer.
1: Hey, well, Mel- Melissa, uh, you and your partners act as receivers in a wide variety of types of cases, and uh, can you comment on some of the kinds of cases where you've been appointed as receivers that may or may not come into the categories that Judge Bledsoe just uh, described.
2: Sure. So thank you. So yes, all of the categories that Judge Bledsoe just described are all types of receiverships that we have seen um, here at at our firm. I would say the only one that we do a lot, the only area that we do a lot of work in that he didn't mention because that would not typically go before his court is we are also appointed as federal equity receivers. And that happens when a federal commission or agency like the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, Federal Telecommunications Commission, any of those entities um, have start an investigation and an enforcement action against companies or individuals or both, um, they will come into the court, the federal court, and shut down the entity, or if it's, uh, you know, if it's not a complete fraud, they may ask that the entity be transitioned um, to a receiver, so those happen when there's a when there's a fraud alleged, either a Ponzi scheme or um, very often with the with the Federal Communications Commission, it's um, you know boiler rooms. Um, they will want to take the allegedly fraudulent operators out of control, put a receiver in control, and either then we turn back to uh, the categories that Judge Bledsoe was talking about, either. A receiver is going to come in to liquidate and distribute to identify creditors and distribute to creditors. Or a receiver may come in. uh, In fact, I'm in one now where we take over to transition, to run the business, see what we can do to make the business operate lawfully, and then transition it to um, out of our control and and to the control of maybe somebody that's already a a managing member or an investor um, in the business. So, I would go back to say all of the areas that Judge Bledsoe talked about and then we would just add in the federal (laughs) equity receiverships.
1: So is it fair to say that most of the time, leaving aside the federal uh, regulatory receiverships that you described before, uh, that most of the time a receiver gets appointed on the application of someone who's interested in the subject matter of the receivership?
2: So do you want me to take that Judge Bledsoe? Either way, yeah. Sure. So, Actually, in both the federal enforcement action scenarios and in the private scenarios and everything in between, the receiver is usually, and Judge Bledsoe obviously can correct me if I'm wrong here, but in my experience, the receiver is usually recommended to the court by, yes, someone who somehow has a personal interest. So either in the in the federal enforcement actions, the, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC will, when they realize that they're going to go to the court and ask the court to freeze the business or shut the business down, they will start identifying people that have the skills and the resources to step in as they will recommend that person. Usually the the federal agencies will recommend a couple of people to the court. The court may or may not accept that recommendation and may just decide, you know what, I got somebody else in mind that I'm going to appoint. Um, The court is not bound by the recommendations Mm -hmm. of, you know, whoever it is that's recommending appointment of a receiver. Same thing in the state court actions. We will usually get contacted ahead of time by parties that say, You know, there's this um, LLC or, you know, this operating entity, all of the members are fighting. And we think that you would be the perfect person to come in and take over operations while the fights are resolved. Um, It does happen sometimes where all the parties agree, yes. You know, we think Melissa would be a perfect person to run this business objectively while we sort through all the litigation issues. Or more often the case, one side is recommending us, the other side may not. And the judge has to make a determination based on our experience if uh, the judge wants to appoint us. And very often the judge will come in and say that they have somebody uh, in mind that they want to appoint. We get a lot of those where there's nobody recommended. We get a lot of those where the judges are familiar with our work and are comfortable um, with our background and, and will appoint us.
1: Judge, how do you decide whom to appoint as a receiver when there is a request for a receiver? Uh,
0: well, I think, uh, as Melissa said, I think the recommendations from the parties are are very important. Um, uh, I usually will agree to um, uh, to the person that the parties have agreed to, unless that is uh, there's just a, a glaring uh, lack of appropriate expertise. Uh, if there's a dispute between the parties, I, I, you know, typically I'll ask them to uh, each bring forward one or two candidates, then I will examine those uh, and, uh, and determine who I think would be appropriate, uh, given the facts and circumstances in the case. I, I do think it's, uh, it's really important to understand the, the needs of the receivership. Uh, that is what skills are necessary in the receiver uh, in order to uh, make that selection. I think it's also important to have a good grasp of what the res- the uh, receivership's resources are um, uh, and that can that can factor into for example, whether you select an attorney who then will hire professionals, uh, including attorneys uh, to represent the uh, receivership estate or Uh, whether you hire a receiver who will serve not only as a receiver, but also as the attorney and and smaller dollar kind of, uh, uh, kind of matters. Um, uh, Sometimes you may want to have an accountant uh, or someone with forensic skills, be the receiver and uh, let them hire uh, attorneys. Uh, Sometimes you want to have an attorney as the receiver and, uh, have the, re- the uh, attorney then hire professionals including uh, professional accounting services. It really depends on uh, The nature of the allegations the type of receivership and if what seems to really uh, You know make sense in the circumstances you uh, For example if what you need to do is sell real estate uh, that that may be uh, a different skill set than you need if what you need is to is to hire somebody to run a business or to oversee and hire management to run a business. Um, so I'd, I mean, that, that's, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I do though. Um, uh, I mean, for, for lawyers, it would be important to uh, develop a reputation uh, as Melissa has to uh, be someone that can serve as a receiver uh, to put you in a position to be recommended to the court. Cause I do think while I have appointed uh, or at least um suggested alternatives to those recommended by the parties Uh, i think most judges will have um will, will give appropriate deference to the recommendations particularly if the parties have agreed on someone
1: in north carolina and florida is there an approved list of qualified receivers that the courts have to select from, or do they have complete discretion? The reason I ask is because I know in New York you have to qualify as a receiver by taking training and getting certified.
0: Uh, in the North Carolina state court system, there is not. Um, uh, there, you really have very broad discretion. In fact, our uh, we, do not have, we have not adopted in North Carolina a, uh, any version of a model receivership statute. I know our legislature is considering um, adopting a, a variation of that. Uh, at least bill a bill has been introduced to that effect. Um, but really the court has broad discretion under our receivership statute. Uh, the court also under our case law has uh, broad inherent authority to appoint a receiver and to determine the duties that a receiver has. Uh, so I think in some jurisdictions, uh, there's a lot of attention paid to the receivership statute to determine exactly what the receivership uh, will be and what the receiver's duties will be. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, really the thing that you want to look to is, uh, is the receivership, or the, that, excuse me, the order appointing the receiver and creating the receivership. Um, that obviously has to be consistent with our state statute. But that's where you will find the detailed um, uh, devolution of power and responsibility and authority uh, to the receiver.
2: Uh, Melissa, go ahead, comments. So speaking from Florida, we do not either in our state or federal courts have approved lists. Uh, I think there is definitely some benefit to that. but no, at this point, you the judge can appoint pretty much, they have a very wide discretion as well um, to, to appoint whoever they want. I would say, um, and if you don't mind me segueing, in, I think to one of our next topics, Stuart, from here, um, it's interesting to my partners and me, we comment about this a lot, how often people say to us, you know, something like, wow, that's a good gig, that receivership gig. How do I get involved? How do I do that? Um, And it's a little concerning sometimes that people think they can just, I want to be a receiver and just, they're going to hop in and try and take over. While they may be extremely competent and um, good, smart, quality attorneys, um, it's a you have to have some knowledge, um, of how the process works. It's not that easy to just step in because you're a a good lawyer. And in fact, we have been hired, um, many times, either as the outside lawyers, because as Judge Bledsoe said, um, you can be hired as a receiver and then retain your own law firm to represent you, or sometimes judges require that you retain outside lawyers, um, to represent you, we are often retained as the lawyers for the receivers, and many times we have been retained as the lawyers to clean up the mess left by a receiver who maybe wasn't um, so sure of the process. Um, it's it's very uh, it's a very specialized area. And as Judge Bledsoe said, you know, we look at the order appointing us as the Bible, and we know uh, we're very familiar with the statutes, both the state statutes and the federal statutes that apply to receiverships. But um, you are bound by your orders appointing you, and it's it's not just something that's, you know, just because you're a good lawyer that you're going to know how to do It, it. Definitely would be recommended that you start by working with an experienced receiver um, to learn the ropes before you just step in and take one over yourself.
0: I will say, if I may, I'll say in follow-up to Melissa's comment, um, uh, it really does matter a lot to the court to have a good receiver and a good receiver's counsel involved in the case. Uh, because they can make the judge's life so much easier if they are doing everything well uh, and appropriately. Uh, uh, the last thing the judge wants to do is appoint someone uh, as a receiver that is going to create uh, problems for the judge, uh, uh, make errors that the judge uh, has to be involved in correcting and, and that kind of thing. I mean, you, you really want to have someone who knows what they're doing. Um, when you're the one who's picking
1: them So that brings me to the next uh, area uh, Which is how much ongoing supervision? Typically is there how much reporting how much oversight? How often is the receiver before the judge for one reason or another? Uh, and for what reasons?
0: Well, I can say my experience that uh, uh, I have a fair amount of, uh, oversight. I mean, I will have status conferences. I will require the, uh, receiver to obtain court approval for, uh, transactions of a certain type or, or in a certain dollar level. Um, uh, I, I may, uh, you know, uh, if it's a settlement of a claim, if it's a, uh, if it's a, uh, uh a compromise of, well, somewhat settlement or a compromise of a claim, if it's a payment of a certain uh, expense, if it's um, uh, sale of an asset, uh, those kinds of things, um, I may give, I may delegate uh, to the receiver below a certain threshold, but then uh, require the receiver on a uh, notice and objection, that is a notice and opportunity for objection basis to uh, obtain court approval for uh, tr- uh, for other, uh, more significant, uh, activity. And, um, uh, that usually involves, um, you know, fairly regular, uh, input from the receiver, uh, and exercise of oversight and review by the court.
2: Um, I would agree with, with that description. Um, you, a lot of, t- I would say, based on our experience, what happens is uh, when we're first appointed, it tends to be there tends to be a reason that we were appointed, and usually. Um, there's a reason that involves something close to the edge of disaster. (laughs) So when we are appointed, it is usually all hands on deck. Initially, we have a team that goes in and immediately, you know, goes to the actual brick and mortar business. If we can, if there's multiple locations, we go in all at the same time. So our initial appointment is go in, figure out what's going on, take control um, all within the bounds of whatever the, court told you to do in your order. And then we usually have some schedule of reporting back to the court based on what the receivership order told us to do. Um, So we'll usually file an initial, we have to do an oath of receiver and we have to file an initial report that says, you know, when you appointed me, I went in, this is what I found and I'll do an inventory and i'll tell the court this is what's what's out there in the universe that that you put us in and from there the court can assess okay i'm going to want you to report back to me every 3 months every month every initially every 2 weeks depending on the scenario And then depending on the kind of business, um, there are some where we just check in every once in a while and tell the court, look, we're taking over operations. We're getting everything back in order. And we're just reporting to the court, letting you know what's going on. Um, And then there are more active ones where there may be bad guys running off with money and we need to stop them. In which case the court's going to want to know, I, you know, we don't, Sue anybody. Well, we may, if we sue somebody, we tell the court immediately. If we settle with that person, we ask the court's permission and approval of any settlements and any compromises of claims. Um, so you know, it's a it's another it depends answer. But uh, if you think about the overall generalized purpose of a receivership, it is to maximize the value of that receivership entity or receivership estate, and that's usually done for the benefit of investors and creditors. So the court is going to want to know, make sure we're not wasting anybody's money by doing more than we need to do, and we're acting efficiently, and we're getting any large expenditures approved by the court, and then also making sure that if there's possibilities of going after money, Um, or sources of revenues for the entities or clawing back money that was improperly spent, the court wants to know that we're not just compromising those potential claims and suing for a million dollars, but compromising it for a hundred thousand when, you know, the court wants to know, why are you only getting a hundred thousand dollars out of a million dollar claim? And we'll explain, there may be reasons for doing that. So uh, once you're active in litigation, you usually have more uh, interaction with court.
1: Okay. Um, now the big question, how do receivers get paid, and is the method of compensation different in different types of receiverships or different types of cases? Well, I can say
0: um, from my perspective, I mean, in nearly every case, uh, it's through a process of petition by the attorney with an opportunity for objection by uh, any other interested party uh, subject then to court approval. And, um, uh, in my experience there typically is not very often a challenge to, uh, the receiver's fees. And, uh, more often than not, the receiver's fees are approved as submitted.
1: How are those calculated?
0: Uh, well we, we, uh, we, there statutory, uh, cap but typically what you're doing is uh paying at an hourly rate uh at least in my experience most of the time you're paying an hourly rate but you're keeping an eye on the cap to be sure that you're not uh paying uh higher than the the cap as a percentage of assets
2: yeah melissa, would... melissa
0: may be paying more attention i mean she she may have a wider experience as so she's been both in state and federal court my experience has been in state court
2: The um, usually the proposal. So when when somebody says, hey, you know, we're going to propose you as a receiver, we will in our proposal or in our information that we submit to the court, we'll propose an hourly rate. Um, Almost every single time our hourly rate is lower than our hourly rate that we would charge as a lawyer. Um, it's usually, you know, it's reduced because you figure you probably have an entity in trouble. So you don't, you want to make sure you're reducing your fees. Um, the, the federal agencies usually cap out rates. So those are usually pretty low. So if there's a federal agency getting you appointed, your hourly rate is probably going to be pretty low. Um, then the how you get paid answer is... Usually you're getting paid out of the operating entity if, you know, out of the receivership estate, if there is an estate. Um, if it's a matter of one of the examples that Judge Bledsoe gave is you have a, um, maybe an LLC or some other type of entity that's breaking up, um, you may have to have the partners uh, or the members paying your fees if there's no money in the actual entity to pay your fees. Um, and this is probably a good opportunity to tell people who are listening that want to get one of those receivership gigs, I will tell you very many times we have lost money on these, meaning we, the the firm, the receiver, because we are asked by a court to step in and assist um, with an entity that may be completely insolvent, and there is nobody to pay the fees, and if we we come in as a cur- as a courtesy to the court to keep our relationships with the court sometimes, but also we come in because there's a possibility that we're going to go out and find where the money went and collect it, and then from that we would get paid. But if we are not successful, <laughs> or if we're not collecting enough for the time that we spent, we take a loss, and it happens. Um, but you do that because it's an investment in the future, because you know in the next one that same judge is going to hopefully come around and say, we're going to appoint you again, and maybe there's money in that one. But, yeah.
1: uh, Have you seen or do you anticipate an increase in receivership petitions in connection with the current pandemic?
0: Uh, I will say in answer to that that we have not yet in the North Carolina Business Corps, but we expect to see that at some point. Uh, We'd love to think that we won't, but we are uh, anticipating that we will. But to date, not yet.
2: Uh, Same answer here. We have not seen it yet, um, but we are maybe at the very beginning of it. We've seen a few appointments come in on companies that are having to wind down, but we also expect that there will be an uptick in um, unearthing fraud, which will mean receivers will need to come in to get any fraudsters out, and there will be an uptick in entities not surviving and needing an independent person to wind them down.
1: Okay, let me make a final comment here, which is that Melissa and Judge Bledsoe are chairs of the Receiverships and Fiduciaries Subcommittee in the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee. If you're interested in this area and would like to join, please get hold of them or get hold of me and we'll put you up with becoming a member of the subcommittee. want to talk about your meeting at the coming virtual annual meeting
2: i don't believe we've uh do we have a specific time we are going to be having a meeting i don't know if we have our specific time yet time time slot
1: okay uh so far as i'm aware receiverships and beneficiaries are going to be meeting together with the bankruptcy litigation subcommittee, and uh, the time slots haven't been allocated yet so uh, if you do want to join there will be a subcommittee meeting and you can attend uh during the upcoming virtual annual meeting. And that is all we have time for right now. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Judge Bledsoe, for sharing your thoughts with us. And that's it for episode one of this series. The next episodes will cover sports disputes, tribal litigation, and bankruptcy, not necessarily in that order. Keep your eyes on the business law section's website for the next installments in the series. Goodbye for now.